Hey guys, how's it going? Alex Kapitko here, Centered From Reality Podcast. It is Sunday, October 8th. The theme music sounds positive, sounds upbeat, but the topic today, not so upbeat. I wanted to talk about this yesterday, but kind of a busy weekend, had a few days off, but I decided to break my weekend hiatus and record an episode on what's been going on in Israel involving Hamas launching attacks throughout southern Israel, bombarding Israel, killing at least 600 Israelis as of now, taking many hostages, massacring like students that were at a concert, execution-style killings, civilians being murdered on the streets, soldiers being killed while they're undressed in the middle of the night or in the early morning, and just massive uh, destruction. And I actually want to start with a quote from Jake Sullivan, who is uh, Joe Biden's national security advisor. And the reason I want to start with this is because I kind of want you to think about what he says as I go down explaining what's happened, the ramifications, who's involved, what could be next of all this chaos in Israel between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And uh, so Jake Sullivan said last week at the Atlantic Festival here in quotes, the Middle East region is quieter today than it has been in two decades. The amount of time that I have to spend on crisis and conflict in the Middle East is significantly reduced. If war breaks out, generally around Israel, and questions arise about Israel's very survival, the United States will have to start counting its ammunition. How much is left for Israel after Ukraine has taken its share? And what about Taiwan, now third in line? These are hard questions, and Iran, Russia, and China should be thrilled, collectively and separately, to force them on the United States. So I bring this up because... Right now, the region is seeing, especially after what happened over the weekend, which I'll focus mainly the whole podcast on, but basically the Middle East, ranging from Lebanon to Israel to the West Bank to Gaza, etc., is seeing some of the worst violence over the weekend in decades. But at the same time, it seems like the world has moved on, or at least the politics around the world have changed, and the situation is changing. And I think what Jake Sullivan is getting at in that quote I read is that we have kind of neglected the issues because there's been growing issues around the world. There's been rising violence. There's been rising authoritarianism. You have the threat of China, the threat of Russia, South America with immigration crises, etc. And so it's going to be really complicated, and it's really going to test Western powers like the United States and the UK, etc., to be able to give aid to Israel and and help maybe try to stabilize the region, while the, the political situation around the world has also changed, and now we are kind of extending our resources too far in too many different directions. And it's kind of scary because it seems like we are seeing a huge uptick in chaos in the Middle East. And this will really see, this could even divide us among party lines, ideological lines. Do we, you know, do we choose to help Israel over Ukraine or vice versa? A lot of complicated topics going forward. So continuing on, though, into what happened over the weekend, to add some more context into how bad these attacks by Hamas in Israel were, The Economist notes that at least 600 Israelis were killed in a single day, and that is more than in the previous 19 years of the conflict with Palestinians combined, and thousands were injured. Hamas, the military group that controls Gaza, fired like 3,000 rockets within 24 hours, and that's more than it launched in the first month of their war in 2014. So I think a lot of people are just surprised about how intense this is and how extreme this is and just how much 
more effective it was in a sense because you had basically an all-out operation that involved aerial ground attacks and just the killing of innocent people, military officials, all of the above. Like I, I was reading about how there was a slaughter at a music festival or an, I guess a concert, whatever you want to say, of younger Israeli kids. Um, there's articles about w- old women just scattered on the streets dead. Um, there's talks about protesters killed in the South, like young, like teenage protesters. Like it was just indiscriminate attacks by Hamas against just a wide range of people here. And of course, since this all happened on what Saturday, officials in Gaza have now said that the Israelis have responded. Of course they will. And it's been kind of a fire and fury response. And what I mean here is that Israeli airstrikes have killed more than 300 Palestinians. More than 2,000 have been wounded. They've leveled buildings. Um, Hamas has urged Palestinians to sweep, a re- sweep away the Israeli occupation from areas in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. It is not good. It is not good. I've seen pictures of people just running, buildings getting leveled in the Palestinian territories. And it's, it's just really bad. And I've read some interesting literature about how this might be a Pyrrhic victory at best for Hamas because, yeah, this is one of their most successful and well-orchestrated attacks. I'm not saying it was good. It was horrible. The, the amount of death is just unacceptable. But it was one of their most effective attacks. And so a, a lot of people are saying this is definitely a Pyrrhic victory, meaning that, okay, they got some clout. Iran's happy. You know, all these other allies of Iran, Hezbollah's happy. But at the end of the day, this is probably going to bring more bloodshed into Palestine because the far-right government of Israel, led by Netanyahu, is not going to just, you know, try to find peace at this point. This is like a fire and fury moment. And this could end up making things worse for Palestine down the road. And I think in the next coming of weeks, we are going to see a lot of people, or in days, hours, we're going to see a lot of people retconning this, saying this was Israel's fault at the end of the day because, you know, of their expansion into the disputed territories, into their occupation zones, not accepting Palestine as a state, blah, blah, blah. I will get into some of that later, but we have to remember at the end of the day, this is on Hamas. This is on Hamas. This is not Israel's fault in this case. Hamas is the one who did this indiscriminate killing of women and children. They are pieces of shits. And at the end of the day, don't let people try to retcon this and both sides it because as I've talked about on the podcast many times, the Israeli coalition right now is far right. It's expansionist and it does not believe that Palestinians have a right to the territory they have right now. So of course we can talk about that. But in this case, what, the, what, what Hamas has done is atrocious first off, but also it's just going to hurt the Palestinian cause because now, you know, places in Palestine are getting leveled. The people in those buildings that are dying, they're not part of Hamas. This is just making it worse for everybody. And yeah, Hamas should suffer for this. Hezbollah should suffer. Um, Iran supporting this. It's despicable. There should be ramifications or reactions, I guess, to that. But either way, this is on Hamas. I just want to clarify that. Anyway, so moving on, this has been... A lot of people are kind of dubbing this the second Yom Kippur, um, which refers to the surprise attack on Israel by Egypt and Syria in 1973. Others are even calling this the Israeli 9-11. And it's actually not been since, I think it was 47 to 48 or 49, that Palestinian or Arab forces had actually captured Israeli villages. And that was the Arab-Israeli war. And so this really is a huge change of events. And it was a shocking moment and a shocking blow for Israel on so many reasons. The first one I would say here is that, well, as I've already said, it's just the scope of the invasion and the attacks is insane. 
But the other thing here is that on the national security side, it's really alarming because Israel has put in so much into their national defense, their surveillance, their security. They have technology like the Iron Dome. And it seems like all basically put into question today. And, you know, I think we're going to learn a lot in the days and weeks to come. So it's too early to really know exactly what happened. But the IDF or Israeli Defense Forces do seem like they really dropped the ball on this one. And then I guess at the same time, you kind of then have to point fingers at U.S. intelligence as well, because obviously all of us are working together. But like I said, it's somewhat surprising just because of how prepared Israeli has been. And now kind of on a side note to this, there's also a political issue with how this has happened is because the right, obviously right now led by Benjamin Netanyahu, it's long argued that it was the reason that they had relative peace and stability over the last, I don't know, decade, decade and a half or so. And the peace is really over. I think Netanyahu's legacy has already been in shambles, but now it's horrible. And you just have to wonder, like, what's next? Because literally the whole thing has been security and maybe a little bit less democracy, but we're keeping you safe from attacks from groups like Hamas. And now, even with all this money and training and technology they have, it does look like someone wasn't quite ready for this. And I, I do probably think that Netanyahu is going to be able to deflect and maybe blame the left for not being ready or not, not being enough into security or whatever. But I think the one reason that could be the reason why the intelligence services were not quite prepared is because they were distracted. And what I mean here is that it seems like some of the other territories and maybe just Israeli intelligence in general was kind of thrown into disarray because the far right has become quite expansionist. And so they've been a little bit more outward looking and a little bit more willing to keep seizing territories from, you know, Palestinian and the PLA and stuff like that. And so my theory here is that they became almost too expansionist, too nationalistic, and they were outward looking while there were issues internally. And we, we see this around the world at times when the government does try to be more expansionist like this. And now talking still about why this is pretty unprecedented, or at least from recent memory, is also the whole hostage thing. I was reading today that in the past, for example, if the Palestinians like Hamas or other groups took maybe like two Israeli troops or two Israeli hostages of any type, Sometimes it would lead to them having to give up like hundreds of Palestinians that the Israelis captured in return for just one Israeli that was captured. And this could take a long time to figure out. And in this case, the numbers are still coming out, so I don't know specifically, but it looks like you have potentially hundreds of hostages that were taken by Hamas back to the Palestinian territories. And the problem there is that in the past, it's been really hard just to get one Israeli back. Imagine now that they have dozens, tens of dozens, hundreds, right? And this means this could go on for years. And it could also, again, radicalize young Israelis, radicalize the Israeli government, lead to more conflict. But then it also means that the Israelis need to be careful about striking back inside of Palestine. Because what if they're hurting their own? What if they're harming hostages? It's a really tough one, but... The size and just diverse types of people that have been taken is going to draw this out. And that is a huge, huge issue. Of course, international response, or at least reaction, is fairly standard. You know, the, U the UN Security Council, according to reports, is probably right now discussing the war triggered by Hamas's assault on Israel in an emergency session on Sunday. I, I saw that the United States has sent 
weapons as well as aid and ships into the region, which, I mean, is never great. But, of course, Biden has said that his administration's support for Israel is rock-solid, unwavering. You've heard expressions of solidarity from Rishi Sunak, who is uh, Britain's prime minister, also from Justin Trudeau. So obviously we're united on that. Iran had despicable comments, though, congratulating the the militants on attacking Israel and killing women and children. So that is always nice, but unfortunately not particularly surprising. Now, what's next, I think, is going to be fairly complicated because it seems to me like the longer the fighting goes on and the more vitriol grows, the greater the chance that the violence spreads. And unfortunately, as of today, I did read that the fighting has expanded. What I mean is that The Economist had a good piece this morning, and it talked about how Hezbollah, which is obviously backed by Iran, but it operates mainly out of Lebanon, it actually shelled Israeli military positions. And a lot of people think that this maybe means that the war is widening. And of course, Israel then fired back with artillery. And a lot of people are calling this a mostly symbolic move because It was only a few rockets that Hezbollah fired, and this was at the Shabbat Farms, which is an Israel-occupied, disputed territory, kind of on the border between Lebanon, Syria, and Israel. And so people think this was just in solidarity and symbolic to show support for, for Palestine. But I mean, technically now we do have multiple different state actors and different terrorist groups all involved. So at the end of the day, it doesn't tell me things are looking better. And talking further about what's next, I think this means that also inside of the occupied territories, we see probably some significant clashing and conflict and just hatred, I think, between Israelis and the Palestinians, which is obviously not good for trying to bring some stability to the region. I remember reading in, in college back in undergraduate days back at Chapman that the second intifada that I think it happened from like It was like 2000 to 2005, and it was a pretty significant uprising by Palestinians against Israel, led to a shit ton of deaths, and a lot of things they talk about is that after the second infidata, basically it turned young Israelis against even trying to talk or assimilate or get to know Palestinians. Basically, it just really divided the society, and a lot of people say with this new, basically, Israeli 9-11 this outrage will create a new generation of young Israelis who don't even want to connect with Palestinians and they won't even be able to understand how Palestinian factions could be a partner for peace. So again, that's why I I call this very significantly a Pyrrhic victory because yeah, okay, they killed a lot of Israelis, took a lot of prisoners today. It's good for their propaganda in Iran. But at the end of the day, it's probably worse for peace, worse for Palestinians, the average Palestinian going forward. And I'm also worried Israel's right-wing coalition right now with some of the worst actors in Israel, it's been focused on annexing parts of the West Bank for quite a while now, and it's not going to reconsider. It's just going to double down those efforts, probably be more militaristic and more violent. And then I also wonder, you know, if you mix in this just kind of extreme right-wing coalition with anger now amongst Israelis, rightful anger against the terrorists and what they did, I have to wonder if you're going to see vigilante violence in the occupied territories where you have like Israelis, just Israeli citizens taking up arms against Palestinians and vice versa. That could last a while. That could lead to a lot of other downhill effects, right? And so 
it's it's not good. It's it's very worrying in a lot of ways. And I think again, Palestinians, uh, Hamas specifically, is a terrorist organization. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It it is interesting. I, I've seen some media reports and social media where people are like Palestinian Hamas militants. These aren't militants. They are terrorists. We should call them what they are. We didn't call ISIS militants in the United States. We didn't call Al-Qaeda militants or Taliban. We called them what they were, terrorists. And we need to do the same. Now, I do think Netanyahu, what he's been doing for a while has hurt this. And there's a lot of reasons why I think that his policy of sidelining the Palestinians has backfired. And each of, his, each of the reasons that he's sidelined the Palestinians, all of them has been blown up. And there's kind of three main reasons he's done it that I want to talk about briefly because basically what's happened is time and time again, I feel like the Palestinians have been kind of basically sidelined. A lot of the conversations, policy actions have been kind of keeping them out of it. And I guess if you have had multiple intifadas, violence, terrible casualties, it will make you not want to bring them to the table. But I also think it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense. But anyways... The Economist has a good piece today that talks about how basically Netanyahu's security through sidelining Palestinians has depended on three calculations, but it talks about how each of these has basically been thrown up in the air after this assault today. So the first one it talks about is that it it seems basically that Israeli safety has been put forward, and understandably so, where there's really no emphasis on even worrying about the Palestinian question or the two-state solution, and it's gotten worse. So basically the question of what to do with Palestine was left to rot, but Israelis could remain safe. And so basically after the second intifada, so like 2005 onward, Israel kind of shut out most Palestinian populations, and then they started really getting involved with superior intelligence overwhelming firepower, the Iron Dome, which is the anti-rocket system they have. And basically, they could manage the armed threat from Palestinian fighters, right? It, they kept it manageable. So this was their. This is basically what Netanyahu learned during his time. And I think it did come back to backfire, but it was basically like ignoring what was going on in Palestine and just beefing up security and kind of just keeping the radicals out and the terrorists out, and you'll be fine. And obviously... Just ignoring the problem and not talking about it, leaving the Palestinian question to rot, did not work. The other assumption that Netanyahu's policies kind of relied on was that actually Hamas and the existence of Hamas could help Israel deal with Fatah, which is the Palestinian party that runs the West Bank. Basically, the idea was that if you divide the Palestinians and you have like Hamas and Fatah... And other obviously groups like Hezbollah with with influence as well, then maybe this could have some form of a divide and rule concept happening in Palestine that would keep them weak, and you could hope that the influence of these radical factions would undermine the credibility of moderates as partners for peace. And this all was okay, basically. Like as long as Palestine was destabilized internally, you didn't really have to worry about things happening as much in Israel. But again. Unfortunately, we are learning this week with this giant terrorist assault, it seems like as Fatah and other groups have lost legitimacy, now Hamas is claiming to be the true voice of Palestinian resistance. And 
I think this is one of those big miscalculations that Netanyahu and other Israeli politicians have done is that they they hoped that this inter-Palestinian Game of Thrones type of scenario was going to protect Israelis, but it actually ended up making Israelis targets, and Hamas now has come out of this, I think, with a lot of propaganda, at least, and a lot of imagery to have backing them now, and that's not good. And I guess the other assumption that has kind of guided Netanyahu and the Likub parties when they've dealt with Palestine is that there was the assumption that Israel could strengthen its position in the Middle East by pursuing diplomacy. Basically not, not diplomacy with the Palestinians, of course. That's never really been on the table for quite some time. But it was an idea of trying to foster relationships with countries like Morocco, Bahrain, Israel, or not Israel, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia. And that view really came to fruition when Israel signed the Abraham Accords, which I am very against, by the way. But the Abraham Accords happened back in 2020. And basically, this was, I, I would say this was called, this was one of Trump's big foreign policy actions as president helping broker this deal between Israel and countries like Bahrain. It was going to be Saudi Arabia until maybe this weekend, the UAE. And Trump has called this, you know, Arab peace, bringing peace to Israel and Palestine. Even I've seen some people on the left say that as well. Um, I think we have to remember that the Abraham Accords were not a peace deal. This was basically opening up trade relations and just like normalizing trade relations with Israel and other Arab countries. But Palestine was really never part of the conversation once again. And peace was really not the deal of this. It was more normalizing with countries that really would probably be fine with doing this already, like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the UAE, stuff like that. And I will always argue this because it's happened from the Camp David Accords to other accords like the Oslo Accords where either Egypt or another stronger power basically acts as the negotiator for Palestine, but usually kind of screws them over in a sense, or you do have Palestinian leaders at the table, but they are radical and kind of burn down the deal before it even happens. And in this case, it, I just think the Camp David Accords were not productive, and instead what's happened is Palestine, again, has been left to fester, while Israel is normalizing it with other actors that are on much better footing already and not don't hate Israel as much as, say, Iran or growing, growingly Palestine as well. And there's a good article about two years ago after the Abraham Accords were signed, and it's uh, in Foreign Policy magazine, and it basically brings up some interesting points, kind of doing a two-year reflection on the Abraham Accords and whether they were good or not. And it talks about how the Accords did help Israel make trade relationships with former adversaries. So you could probably argue that this does make Israel safer, and I am for Israel being safer, no doubt. Um, one part of the article writes here, the Accords signed at the White House two years ago between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain set the stage for covert relations to emerge and flourish, finally putting an end to, a, um, to Israel's near total ostracism in the Arab world. By opening the door to improve relationships with some neighbors, the Accords helped cement Israel's place as a sovereign regional heavyweight. And it also talks about how there have been some major gains for Israel, like Saudi Arabia was actually going to be probably normalizing some deals with Israel soon. Now after this weekend, I'm not totally sure about that, 
it's hard for Saudi Arabia to back a country or either country really where all this killing's happening. But back to the UAE, a free trade agreement was signed with the UAE, I think in 2022. And it paves the way for like two or for like $10 billion in bilateral trade over the next five years. The two countries have signed packs in an array of areas, including like bilateral investment, space travel, medicine, that stuff's all good. So the Abraham Accords, I think we're good at bringing Israel into the conversations with other Arab actors. But now getting back to the elephant in the room, which is Palestine and this weekend and what we're seeing, the Abraham Accords did, I think, what every other accords that we've seen through history have done, unfortunately. And this foreign policy article from back in 2022, it does talk about how it's hard to say if these accords are ever going to bring peace to the region, and it looks like they're actually losing luster. It writes here because, in quotes, inside Israel, the Abraham Accords are overshadowed by the intensification of conflict with the Palestinians. It continues, at the time, then-Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu lauded the accords as a breakthrough because they divorced normalization with Arab states from any Israeli peace with the Palestinians. And it continues, what looked like a breakthrough then now looks like the biggest drawback of the accords. And I would agree there. So what it's saying is that people like Benjamin Netanyahu actually liked this normalization with other actors without actually having to really recognize or even acknowledge Palestine or what to do with Palestine. And he thought it was good because they're bringing peace with other Arab countries without actually having to have this difficult conversation. But it seems like actually peace or just like some sort of stability in the region will never be reached as long as you have bad actors inside of Lebanon and a Palestine that has bad actors but also has been abused, I think, by the international community as well. And this foreign policy article also notes the Abraham Accords may have raised Israel's regional profile, but that didn't translate into a spirit of generosity with the problem closest at hand. The article writes later, with unprecedented diplomatic capabilities, Israel could have said, let's be generous to the Palestinians, but instead it said, we can do whatever suits us. And this was um, a quote by Alon Leal, who is the former director general of the Israeli foreign ministry. And now I would honestly just argue that I think it would actually help both sides if there could be some sort of conversation happening, which unfortunately isn't because as we know, for example, like Mahmoud Abbas, who is, I guess, technically the leader of Palestine, he's corrupt. He's like a chain-smoking 90-year-old who hasn't done anything, has no legitimacy, is not going to step down from power. And then you have groups like Hamas in there as well. And so like Palestinian leadership is not there. Whenever they do get the chance to come to the table in the past, historically, they've shot themselves in the foot. And then it does lead to this type of radicalization. And so it's, it's, it's extremely tough. But I would also then say that I don't think the Israeli government right now understands that you can't just keep forgetting about this or pushing it under the rug or expanding more and more into territories that it does look like it's illegal to do so according to the international law. So I think these sides, it would be nice one day, and of course this is my dream world, hunky-dory world, that you would just hope that like one day there'd be an understanding that you can't just keep like keeping the status quo. And now, of course, the last thing I want to talk about is kind of the international side of this. So I think President Biden has done all he can right now, which is bolster our military presence in the region. I think he's done what any decent president should do, right? But of course, now the finger pointing, especially on the American right, is already happening. And this is where I worry that we could see a splinter in what's happening in Ukraine, 
how we're going to maybe respond to this in Israel, etc. And so I, I should probably remind you guys that, oh, I think about a month ago, it was sometime in September, I forget specifically when, but Biden was criticized basically for engaging in a prisoner swap with Iran last month. And what happened is Iran returned American hostages to the United States, but the Biden administration agreed to unfreeze Iranian assets that were in Qatar, I believe. And now they were transferred to a bank in South Korea. So, but, but then also there were, there were definitely stipulations though, where the money could only be used on humanitarian aid and nation building inside of Iran. So it was limited but now what's happening is a lot of people on the American right, and especially Donald Trump himself, are claiming that the Biden administration basically is helping fund Hamas's attacks on Israel because of this controversial, controversial prisoner swap deal that released Iranian funds. Now, we can have a whole conversation about whether Biden should have done this, but what I will say is that I mean, this is a tough one where, like, should the United States be able to seize another country's funds and put them in a locked account, basically? that I don't think so, personally. I think that's where my libertarian instincts would come in and say, I don't think we should be able to do that. There's, all, there's probably illegal actions already happening with that. But then also you have to then think, is Iran involved here? And right now, you know, I'm, I'm going to go with Occam's razor here and say that Iran is cheering it on, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. Iran is happy. Now we are seeing Hezbollah forces backed by Iran firing rockets in Lebanon towards Israel and vice versa. But to me, Occam's razor would say that the most simple answer to this is that the Palestinians, sorry, I keep saying Palestinians, Hamas has been planning this for months. It, it was an old school plan, mainly through written documentation, not, not online, not on, not on networks that could maybe be tracked by the Israeli defense forces or anything like that. And they hate Israel, and the Israeli government has got more radical and wants to annex more of the West Bank and parts of Gaza, and they kind of want to, you know, pretty much take over all of Palestine. And so I think there's a lot of radicalization that happened inside of Palestine. And these terrorists did some atrocious acts after it's been brewing for a long time, and the conflict's not gotten better. To me, that is Occam's razor, not that Iran helped fund this. I'm sure Iran is happy about this. I also just haven't seen enough, though, to say this is Iran's connection. But again, I will be happy to admit I'm wrong if that's true down the road. Now, speaking of Iran, though, this is a good day for Iran, a good weekend for Iran, which fucking sucks in a lot of ways. And what I mean here is that this attack on Israel is not just a horrible failure by Israeli intelligence and military intelligence, but... It's also just such a big success for Iran's axis of resistance and axis of anger and threats and violence towards that area. The, the Atlantic, I think, has a good article talking about how a Hamas spokesperson yesterday told the BBC that Iranian support for the assault was a, joint, was a point of pride. Sorry. And apparently yesterday in Tehran, for example, members of parliament chanted death to Israel and there's the Hamas leader, Ismail Haniyeh, and he made a televised speech warning Arab countries that Israel could not protect them. And this, of course, is a question of the Abraham Accords. Maybe another reason why I don't like the Abraham Accords. But either way, the propaganda, the photos, all of this, it's, it's good for Iran and it's good for Hamas. But it's bad for law and order, human rights, the West, Israel, 
values that a lot of us hold truly. And yeah, I mean, I do think Iran is putting out some pretty shitty statements since this has happened. But so is Mahmoud uh, Abbas, you know, current leader of Palestine. And I don't, I don't like though how I've seen a lot of coverage. If if this was a if this was ISIS doing this, or if this was the Taliban doing this, the coverage would be so different. But because there, I think there's a lot of sympathy in mainstream media for the Palestinian issues. And as I told you guys, I have some sympathy as well. But talking about a Hamas spokesperson talking to the BBC, calling them militants. Hamas doesn't have a spokesman. This is a fucking terrorist propagandist talking to the BBC. And no, they're not militants. They are terrorists who've, you know, massacred women and children. And so I do think there's some bias and sympathy in a, in a lot of the media I see that is kind of, I don't want to say downplaying because no one's really downplaying how bad this is, but there does seem to be a more sympathetic journalistic coverage of Hamas compared to, say, if it wasn't ISIS or the Taliban. And that's that's problematic to me. And I also think Iran needs to... We probably need to scrutinize Iran and look into, though, their actions with Hezbollah in Lebanon firing across the Israeli border because I think there are some questions about Iran's role here down the road, what Iran knows, what their long-term interests are, and does this turn into a bigger conflict? Because that always would worry me as well. And yeah, I mean, I guess I'll just wrap up by saying, I mean, that is the biggest question I have. Is this another like infitata in the works, maybe a worse version? Or is this another sign of destabilization, another breakdown in the Middle East, another proxy war between Iran and Israel? There's a lot of things we're going to have to see. Obviously, this is all still fairly fresh at the end of the day. And let's just say, though, for a moment that this is more than just an internal conflict and it does continuing to widen outside of Israel's borders. Then you have to wonder, like, what does the United States and the UK do, specifically those two? Because this is like we are less involved in the Middle East, as Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, said. We are more worried about China. We are committing, you know, three to five percent of our defense budget to aid to Ukraine, for example. And I can't help but wonder if, say, the the rhetoric and how divided our country is. I don't know if this what's happening in Israel now could split the conversations in Washington about where our aid goes. I could almost see some hardliners on whatever side say, why are we helping Ukraine when our historic ally Israel is having issues and the Middle East is destabilized? Then I could also see other people that maybe are more on the side of like, we should never be in the Middle East to begin with, deciding to still side more with the Ukrainian issue. I just wonder if there could be a big schism now in the United States in our foreign policy involvement involving these two conflicts, because I think there's a lot of people on different sides of this for different reasons. Also, could this help us escalate conflicts or escalate rhetoric with Iran? That also worries me. Either way, uh, when I woke up yesterday and saw this news while I was dog-sitting, the first thing that went to my head is this is like the worst possible time for another destabilizing proxy war, massacre, terrorist attacks all in one because right now we are overextending ourselves across the world and there are are worries there. So anyways, again, Hamas is horrible. These are horrible asshole terrorists that, that need to be held accountable. And I hope they are. But then at the same time, 
I really do hope that this conflict doesn't get brutally worse, but my thoughts are it probably will. Anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Have a great Sunday night. Sorry it's a little late. Had a busy weekend. But, uh, yes, I'll be back probably tomorrow with another episode. So take care.